Jesus was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He did several miracles. One of the things that we read about that we know the most about is that he cast out a bunch of demons from a, a man that was living in a graveyard or cemetery. And he cast them into a herd of swine or pigs, and they ran and jumped off a cliff and jumped in the sea. After that, now keep in mind he was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They got in a boat, and he went back <clears throat> to Capernaum. And Capernaum is actually across, it's north, it's on the northwest side. So he was on the eastern, actually on the eastern side, and he went to the northwestern side. And he ended up in Capernaum. Jesus had actually made Capernaum like a headquarters for his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Um, the city was, for a number of reasons, it was the the home of several of his first disciples, so it made sense for him to come back there often as his home base. He possibly stayed in Peter's house while he was there or some of Peter's family. If you remember, Peter's mother-in-law lived in Capernaum. She's the one that had the fever, and Jesus healed her and drew crowds. That was in Capernaum. Capernaum was also a significant city of that day. <clears throat> we know that Matthew collected taxes. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. That was the area that he collected taxes in for the Roman government. Most likely, there was some type of a high-ranking official of King Herod. We know that there was a centurion of the Roman army that was located in Capernaum. Again, being under Roman rule, they had high-ranking officers placed around to keep the peace. And although Jesus performed a lot of miracles, and remember we talked last week, he, he healed the man that had palsy, and he healed the man with a withered hand. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And although he performed a lot of miracles, and the people came out to see him, the people didn't repent and follow after him. And at some point, we read later on, that Jesus actually pronounced judgment on the city because they didn't respond to what they saw. They came out for the, the hoot and the holler and the, the, what they must have thought were magic tricks or something, and they wanted to see the signs and wonders, but when it came right down to actually following after him, they didn't do that. Let's start with our scripture. I want to read Mark 5, 21 through 24. <clears throat> when Jesus had again crossed over by boat on the other side of the lake, this is from the east side to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Jesus arrives there in Capernaum, and there's this man that named Jairus, and he hears about Jesus. His daughter just happens to be sick, so he goes to where Jesus is. And keep in mind, this is a man that was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a Jewish person, and most of them didn't like Jesus. 
But he had heard that Jesus could heal people, so he goes to Jesus and says, my daughter's sick, why don't you come with me? Because I know if you lay your hands on her, she'll be healed. Now, it doesn't say anything about how he felt about Jesus up until that time. Maybe before then, he just really didn't care. But all of a sudden, he had a need, and where did he go? And I know nobody in this society today ever does that. In desperation, this man, he falls down in front of Jesus, and he pleads with him. I mean, this is a man that's high-ranking in the synagogue, but at this point, his daughter's sick. And it doesn't matter what people think, because he has a need. He kneels down and pleads with Jesus to come healing. Now, it showed a lot of faith for him to go to Jesus and say, I know if you will come with me and lay your hands on her, that she'll be healed. But it also shows limited faith because it says that he really didn't know that Jesus could do it from where he was. So he had a a measure of faith. But a measure of faith is better than no faith at all. And sometimes all we have to hold on to is a measure of faith. But he had that. And the writer here, Mark, doesn't record that Jesus said anything to him. He just says he followed him, and they left to go towards his house. And the large crowd followed him. In that crowd, there was a lady that had some type of a blood disease or an issue of blood, is what the King James Version says. And during their travel to this house, Jesus stops and heals her. Now, you have to picture this crowd of people all around Jesus is slowing him down. Then this lady touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus stops and says, Who touched the hem of my garment? And the disciples said, Lord, there's people all around you. There's probably a lot of people touched your garment. No, but there was somebody because I felt something go out from me. And he saw this lady that had this need, and he stopped on his journey to heal her. Now, let's go to Mark 5.35, and we'll read through 38. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. A lot of times when we come to God, and we pray, and we ask Him for something that we really need, we can come to Him with enough faith to believe that He's able to do what we ask. The problem being, though, that if there's some type of a delay in His answer, or there's a delay in His timing, we question His ability. 
The men that came to Jairus, they said, your daughter's dead. She was sick when you left, but now she's dead, so stop bothering this man. Limited faith. And when we run into those delays, I'm sure that as, as they're headed back, there's all these things running through this man's mind. And then he finds out his daughter has died. And I'm sure there's something went through his mind that says, this isn't fair. If he wouldn't have stopped to help that woman, maybe my daughter would still be alive. If he wouldn't have stopped to heal that person, maybe I would have what I want. But his situation, I'm sure as they're walking, he's a little, come on, come on, Jesus, let's hurry up. Come on. But it goes from bad to worse, like sometimes our situations do. We think we're in a bad position and only to realize that it just got a little bit worse. And the devil steps in right then and he says the exact same thing that the men told Jairus in verse 35. The devil says, why are you bothering him now? Your situation is hopeless. It's over. Give up. God might have been able to help you in that other situation, but now it's gone way too far and he can't help you. Isn't that pretty much what they told this man? Don't bother the master now. Your daughter's dead. And the devil will come up against us and he will say, See, you prayed when things were bad and now they've gotten worse. So stop. Stop bothering God with your problems because he doesn't care about you. But what we need to do is to listen to what Jesus told Jairus in verse 36. He said, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. And I will tell you today, when the devil comes to you and tells you those type of things, you need to ignore what he said, and you need to take the words that Jesus told this man to yourself, and it says to you, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus encouraged, by saying this, he encouraged this man to hold on to the faith that brought him there in the first place. That same faith that you believed could heal your daughter can raise her from the dead. Jesus didn't stop and say, Oh, boy, sorry about that. He didn't do that. He doesn't do that with us today. The man came and said, I have a need. Jesus said, okay, let's go take care of it. When the daughter ended up dying, he didn't stop. If you are in the middle of a situation and you pray and pray and pray and you believe and believe and believe and over and over you read the promises of God that tell you God will deliver you and it seems that things get worse, let me assure you, it doesn't matter how bad they get. If God could fix the first part, He can fix it when it gets worse.
So Jesus continued on to this man's house. But it's interesting that he only took those that were in his inner circle. He took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When we are in a desperate situation, we need to surround ourselves with those who would lift us up. Those that will pray for us and believe with us. Not those like Jairus' people that came to him and said, leave this man alone because she's dead. Not like Job's friends when he was suffering and had lost everything and he's sitting on the ground with big sores on him and all his children are died, all his animals have died, everything he had is gone. And his advice from his friends was that you've done something terribly wrong and God's punishing you. And then his wife says, look, at this point, why don't you just curse God and let him kill you? That's not the people we need to be around. Exactly. That's right. He didn't he didn't want distractions at this point. There was already a situation that had gone from bad to worse and we just didn't need any more distractions. So they get to the house, and it says that there was weeping and wailing going on. The commotion that Jesus found at this house included the family, and it said that they wept and wailed loudly. It not likely was not only just family and relatives, but probably some professional mourners. In that day, people were encouraged, as far as tradition, to hire professional mourners. Even if you were poor, you were encouraged to hire professional mourners because it let all the neighbors know that somebody had died. Now, I'm guessing that these people were professional for a reason. They were probably real good at it. You know, they had those real high-pitched scream mourner type things. And they would hire these people to come in. In fact, Jewish tradition had it that a husband mourning his dead wife was to hire at least two flute players while the women, while the women would wail and scream and holler. Interesting concept. Matthew 9 and 23, this is Matthew's account of this same... Let's read the King James Version here. This is Matthew's account of the same story. Matthew 9, 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making noise... These were musicians. Look at the, the NIV version here of 23. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd... These were professionals. 
So this is what Jesus sees when he comes to this house where this little girl has died. Besides the music and the professional wailing, they would also get out and they'd beat on their chest and, and it was dramatic. It was just ultra dramatic. And the mourning process would last usually somewhere around seven days, even though they buried the person generally within the first 24 hours. Because of the, the heat, they didn't want the body just lying around. So they would bury the person within the first 24 hours, but they would keep this professional mourning thing going on for seven days. Okay, another example. We know that this was tradition because if you look, when um, Lazarus died, Mary and Martha, it was four days later, and people were still mourning. They were still at the house going through this mourning process. Now let's go back to verse 39. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And I like this next part. And after he put them all out, (laughs) that's what you get. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders to not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. The reference to sleep has caused some commentators to say that she wasn't really dead. She was in a coma. Isn't it amazing that people would bother to go to the trouble of being a a Bible scholar or Bible commentator and not even really believe in the power of God? But some people said that it it was not actually death. It was just a coma. But Luke also records this same event. And we have to remember, Luke was a physician. In his opinion, by what everybody said, being a physician, he says she was dead. The suggestion that Jesus made that she was asleep was to show that the condition was a temporary thing and that she would live again. He didn't mean she was just taking a nap. He was saying, it's not that big a deal. If she's dead, it's temporary anyway because I can fix it. If you look in the the book of John and the the, uh, recording of the the death of Lazarus, Jesus used the word sleep when he referred to him. And we know he'd already been in the grave for three days or four days when Jesus got there. And he was wrapped up in all the, the grave clothes. 
And I'm guessing he wasn't just asleep and they did that to him while he was sleeping. He was dead. But it was the same term. And the disciples, they didn't even understand. They, at that point, when, when he said Lazarus, he's not dead, he's just asleep. And the disciples went, Lord, he's been in that grave for four days now. And Jesus had to explain to him, explain to them what he was talking about. Paul used the same term. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15 and 20, the King James Version, 1 Corinthians 15 and 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He didn't mean those that are taking a nap. He meant those that were dead. And the metaphor is particularly appropriate for us as believers because we know that the, the whole dread of death is a temporary thing because as believers there will be a resurrection it's the same type of reference that jesus is using at this place right here so jesus gets there and all these people are screaming and hollering mourning playing flutes and doing whatever they do and jesus tells them that she's not dead she's just asleep and their response shows how superficial their mourning was. Because they went from this wailing and mourning to laughing and making fun of Jesus. Just like that. There was nothing to it. It was just what they're getting paid to do. And Jesus says, the Bible says that Jesus put them all out of the room. He took the mother and the father and his three disciples, the inner circle guys that he brought with him, and they went into the room where the little girl was. The mourners that were there that laughed at Jesus, they all thought she was dead. If she was asleep, they wouldn't have been there mourning. So you had even these people believing she was dead. And then Jesus walks up and he says this phrase that means little girl rise up. And it's interesting that Mark recorded the actual Aramaic words that Jesus used. And I think the reason he did that is because that was the language of the day. And I think he wanted people to understand that there wasn't some magic incantation that was said over the little girl. It was just normal everyday language that was used. Jesus didn't say abracadabra and all that. He just used a phrase that was common of that day. Girl, I say to you, get up. And not only did the little girl get up, but she got up out of the bed and paced around the room while Jesus talked to the parents. And Jesus told the parents to get her something to eat. Maybe it was to distract them a little bit because they were just like, and so he gave them something to do. Y'all are just standing there. I know you can't hardly believe this, so y'all go get her something to eat. She's okay. 
And then the next thing that Jesus did, he told the parents, no, don't tell anybody about this. That's going to be hard to do. You had all those people in there just a minute ago that thought she was dead. And when she walks out of this room, they're going to know something happened. But Jesus did that an awful lot. Maybe he wanted people to understand who he was before he went around doing those things in public and just letting everybody know. Because most of the people of that day that were looking for a Messiah, they wanted a king that would perform miracles. They didn't just want an ordinary guy that walked around doing good. He wasn't what they were looking for, and that's why they didn't see him. Maybe Jesus wanted to give a model of servanthood before he showed them exactly who he was. He didn't claim to be anybody great. In fact, the, the, the fact that he told them, don't tell anybody, is he didn't want his name out there as being something great. Because he was giving examples to those around him of what it was to be a servant. What it was to reach out and help those that had needs. What it was to actually have feelings for those people that were around him. In addition to that, had the word gotten out to all the leaders of that day, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, could have taken and said, he's challenging our authority, which ultimately happened. He's challenging our authority, and they could have tried to end his life even sooner than what the plan was. Remember, John the Baptist was beheaded for speaking out against Herod. And Jesus could have been arrested and put to death, and it wouldn't have been in the timetable that God had set up. There were things that had to be done. Another thing is that if the word got out that all Jesus did was to heal people and do great signs and wonders, people would follow him only for that reason, and they wouldn't sit still enough to be taught. Come on, Jesus, quit doing all that teaching stuff. We want to see some, we want to see some good stuff. We don't, we don't need to hear all that, that, that Bible foundation stuff and that, and that, you know, love your neighbor stuff. Let's see some, let's see some action here. And there are people today that will go from church to church to church only to find where there's something exciting going on. Boy, I, I left that church because over here, man, they've got this going on and that going on. And I, I was only there for about 30 days. And I went to this other church because they had this going on. And they jumped from church to church to church just to where the action is. If that's all you're doing, where are you going to learn? Where are you going to get fed? Where are you going to get a foundation on what all this is about? Signs and wonders are great. Miracles are great. But what do you hold on to when you start going through tough times? You just look for another church? And maybe that's what Jesus was trying to avoid. 
that people would just follow him for the signs and the wonders and the food and all of the things that he provided, and they wouldn't sit still long enough to listen to what he was really trying to tell them about love and redemption. He didn't want to turn into a circus. Exactly. And in today's society, we see a young mother that's dying of cancer. A teenage girl that dies from an overdose of drugs. A plane crashes and it kills dozens, maybe hundreds of people and injures many more. A little boy that has physical and emotional scars from some type of abuse. We see people around the world that are are starving and dying a slow death. And horrible things happen in our world. And we hear about them so often that I believe sometimes we become numb, maybe even calloused to the sufferings of other people if we're not careful. Until they happen in our family. Until we feel that intense pain and we feel the things that test our very belief in God. And then we question, why does God let this stuff happen? See, this synagogue leader, it doesn't say that he ever went to Jesus before. But when he had a need, he knew exactly where to go. There was stuff going on all around him. There were sick people. There were people dying. There was people probably going hungry all around him. But until it struck home, it didn't become personal with him. Sometimes it's hard to understand God's reasoning. Sometimes it's impossible. And there's no doubt that we are very limited in our understanding of the way that God works. And sometimes we we hurt so deeply over things that happen in our lives that, that it doesn't matter what the explanation is. It can't make what was wrong right. Because we're just hurt too badly. My daughter is sick. Please come with me so that you can heal her. And Jesus says, okay, but then on the way, he stops and heals someone else. And in the meantime, while he's taking care of someone else, these men come and say, your daughter died. What feelings must have gone through this man's mind? Grief is an obvious one. My daughter's died. There may have been some anger. It didn't happen like I thought it would. And I just don't want to hear any more about it. I did my part, God. I knew if I came to you, Jesus, that you could come and heal my daughter. And I did my part. And now she died. 
God, I've lived for you all my life. Why would you let this happen to me? God does care how you feel. And He does want us to understand, even though a lot of times it's beyond what we can comprehend. In spite of the heart-wrenching situations, we can know some very important truths about God if we're willing to learn them. One central truth is that God is in control of everything. Every detail of your life is part of His will. If it happens and you're following God, then that's exactly what God wanted you to have happen. If you are following God and something happens that you don't agree with, and you believe that you're following God and in His will, why would you want it to be any way different? So that we could be out of His will? Matthew 10, 29 and 30. This is what Jesus, He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He was making a point that sparrows were virtually worthless. You could buy two sparrows for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very head, hairs of your head are all numbered. That means every morning when you brush your hair and you look at that brush or down on the floor of the bathroom, God's going, scratch that one, scratch that one. That's what it says. The very hairs of your head are numbered. If he knows how many hairs are on your head, don't you think he knows what's in your heart? Proverbs 16 and 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. What seems to be the result of our own careful planning would never happen unless the Lord allowed it to happen. We give ourselves all the credit that it's going good, but that scripture right there says in our heart we plan this stuff, but God's really the one that makes it happen. That's right. God does more than just occasionally intervene in our life. A lot of times we get the concept that we live our lives as we want to live and we walk this path just like we want to walk it in our own mind and the only time that God steps in is when we mess up. No. There's a lot of people think that. That God is something they carry in their pocket and when they run into trouble, they push the little button and he pops out and fixes the problem. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But we do treat him that way. He is constantly guiding history 
at every moment of our life. 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. All of these things don't happen. It says that God causes them to happen. Things in your life don't just happen. God causes those things to happen. Jeremiah 29 and 11, God never wants anything evil to happen to us. That's not part of God's plan for evil. Because in Jeremiah it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's not God's will that anything bad should happen. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. It's just that He didn't cause them to happen. God doesn't cause evil to happen to us because He loves us. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now listen to this next part. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Not God has love or God loves it says God is love. Job 34 and 10. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. When Job's friends came around and said, you've done something horrible and God's punishing you, this was his answer to them. Far be it from God to do evil. Because the Almighty just doesn't do wrong. Sometimes we think that God doesn't care about us because He allows us to suffer. In fact, He knows when we're suffering and He grieves with us when we do suffer. How do you know? When Mary and the family and the friends were at the house when Jesus got there after their brother Lazarus had died they were crying they were, their hearts were broken and look what it says in John 11 33 through 36 when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled where have you laid him he said come and see Lord they replied Jesus wept. He saw how they hurt. He saw the grief in them. And Jesus, the God incarnate, wept because He felt their grief. Mercy is love grieving. And I thought about that for a long time. 
Mercy is love grieving. Stay with me for just a minute here. We know that mercy is undeserved favor or unmerited favor. And it says, I love you so much and I do feel your pain so much that in spite of you not deserving it, I will give you my love. I will feel what you're feeling. Even though you don't deserve it. Jesus felt the grief of this man that we read in the scripture today. And we, we know he felt the grief because he knew this man was, was in anguish. And because of that, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. It's okay. It's okay. He realized the grief of these parents when he got to the, the house because they had lost a child. And he cleared the room of all the people in there that were just making commotion. Got rid of everybody. We have hope today because he has experienced suffering as we do. And because he has experienced suffering, he can help us survive that suffering. He felt the tragedy of losing a loved one. Most likely history says that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, died long before Jesus became a man. He knew what it was like to lose his father. He knew what it was like to lose one of his best friends. He knew what it was like to go hungry. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by those that were close to him. Hebrews 4 and 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He is one that can be touched with the same feelings because he experienced them himself. And again and again in the Word of God we read about God's, Jesus' awareness and his experience of suffering. And I'm sure there were times in Jesus' life on earth that that human side said, this isn't fair. I shouldn't have to go through this. But instead, he came into the world to fight beside us, fight within us, the forces of evil that try to destroy us every day. He took, our, he took up our struggle with evil. He didn't have to do that. But he took it upon himself because of his divine compassion and he feels our misery and our anguish as if it was his own. Judges 10 and 16. 
says they got rid of the foreign gods among them and they served the Lord. And he could know, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. They were distraught. The people were distraught. They were just beside themselves. And they said, God, get, we'll get rid of everything here and just do to us whatever, whatever you want to do. But he couldn't stand that they were so miserable. It hurt him when his people were hurting. Isaiah 63 and 9 says, In all our distress he was too distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. In their distress he too was distressed. When you are hurting, he feels that hurt. Hebrews 2 and 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered. He understands when you suffer. Psalm 31 and 7 says, I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. Psalm 23 and 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is with you wherever you go. Another important truth that we have to remember is that sometimes God allows evil and suffering because He can bring good from it. We don't like to hear that. God, just bring the good without the bad. We just want the good part. Nobody ever felt that way? That's right. If you remember back in the Old Testament... God allowed Joseph to be sold as a slave and put in prison. And through this, Joseph became a ruler in Egypt so that when there was a famine, he could save his family from starvation because he was there. Had he not been sold into slavery, he could have never saved his family. What are you willing to go through to save your family? Joseph later forgave his brothers, and he said in Genesis 50 and 20, he said, you intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You did it mean. You guys were bad to me. But God took what you did, and he turned it around for good, and look what it's done now. Romans 8 and 28, Scripture that we all know very well. It says, all, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those that love Him and have been called according to His purpose. Boy, we don't want to hear that sometimes. 
When we're going through stuff, I don't want somebody telling me, well, just all things work together for the good of the... You know what? That's one of those scriptures that's a whole lot easier to tell somebody else than it is to tell ourselves. When you're sick, it's a lot easier for me to believe for your healing than when I'm sick. When you're having financial problems, it's a lot easier for me to pat you on the back and say, just hang in there because God knows what He's doing. But when it happens to me, I don't want to hear all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord. And if you tell the truth, you don't either. But you know what? It doesn't change the fact that it is true that all things do work together. God sometimes has to cause things to go a certain way to get to where He needs us to get. That's right. He allows us to experience suffering because benefits can come from it. Matthew 5 and 4 says, Blessed are those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. You can't be comforted unless you mourn. In the 10th verse, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted? And look what you receive. And I understand. We cannot fully understand the infinite wisdom of God. I can't understand it. I wish I could. Because when things didn't go exactly like I thought they should, I would just sit there and go, it's okay. God knows what He's doing. No big deal. Aren't you worried? No, I'm not worried. God's in control. Now, I know all of y'all, that's the way you do it, but I have a problem with that. When things aren't going good, it gets too easy for us to see all the problems around us and take our eyes off of God. It goes back to that thing, and we've talked about it so many times, the disciples are on this boat out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and they look over there and they see Jesus coming towards them, walking on the water. And there's this storm and they're going back and forth and back and forth. And there's Jesus. First they think it's a ghost. And they think, hey, there's Jesus. Look you there. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, step out of the boat and walk out here to where I am. It's bad enough in this boat, Lord. I'm thinking I'm going to stay in the boat. But he doesn't. He steps out into the water and he starts walking. Hey, look at me. I'm walking on water. What did I just say? I'm walking on water. I can't walk on water. Look at these waves around me. Uh oh. And Jesus comes along and pulls him up out of the water. What happened? He started looking at everything around him. He started rationalizing all this in his mind. People can't walk on water. And you know what? It's exactly what happened. 
God can't fix this situation. Well, if that's what you believe, you're probably right. And we, we talk about Peter so badly. <laughs> if he would have just kept his eyes on Jesus. Let me tell you something. I don't think anyone in this building would have stepped out of the boat, first of all. So give him a break. At least he had faith to step out on the water. Because I've stepped into the water before. I know what happens. We can know one thing with all certainty. And that's that God is in control. And that His only concern is for our eternal happiness. We know that He can bring good from evil. And we can try to find ways to cooperate with His plan by finding ways to grow in strength, sensitivity, conviction, and humility as a result of the experience that we go through as we follow Him. Look around today at your life. Maybe you thought things were bad and then all of a sudden they got worse. Just like in Jairus' situation. The thing to remember is that Jesus' words are not those that came up to the group from the house. They brought bad news. Jesus looked at him and said in response to that, First of all, he ignored what they said. And he looked at this man and he said, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Simple words. If he could take care of the bad, he can take care of the worse. If he could heal a little girl that was sick, he could heal her if she died. He asked the Pharisees last week, well, you're complaining and saying that I don't have any right to forgive sin. Well, which is harder, for someone to forgive somebody's sins or to tell some guy that's had palsy all his life to stand up and walk? Let me answer your question for you. That was a rhetorical question. Hey, stand up. And the guy stood up. In other words, the answer was, I can do either one. If your situation has gone from bad to worse, He can fix worse. That's right. And pardon the English, but He can even fix worser. I know that's not a word. Worstest. There is no situation that is impossible for God. The only limits on God are the ones that we place on Him. So today I would encourage you, look up, be encouraged, and know that God is in control. God bless you.